if you are a Christian who believes that Christianity um, in the early church era was a more faithful representation of the historic faith, then what you are essentially doing is critical theory because you're thinking critically about the way things are in the church and the way things should be. Hi everyone, this is Rebecca, lead editor at The Kingdom Outpost, and I wanted to make a little video and talk about critical theory and the Christian critical theory and the kingdom of God. Because this is a very controversial topic going around, and I wanted to put this out there and have a discussion about critical theory. Now, the main thing that I think people feel is a sense of frustration. Like, you can feel like you're being overrun by all these ideas that come from somewhere else and that you feel are being forced on people. And that is a very valid feeling because academia should never be about pushing one point of view. Academia um, is about a lot of people having conversations about things that they really care about and they really believe in, not unlike theology. So if you really care, you really believe in something, you might say it in a very forceful way, but really academia is about discourse, disagreement, discussion. It's about conversations that happen. And I can tell you that things said and proclaimed 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, these things have changed. One of the things that has changed is secular secularization theory. Secularization theory came about maybe 1914 when Max Weber said, look, religion is going to end. Science is going to take over religion. But in actual fact, that didn't happen. Religion is thriving in the 21st century. Many scientists, many cultures around the world, many religions are not finding themselves like um, pushed out by science or modernization. Quite the opposite is true. The developing world is seeing a, sea, a, a surge in religion, siege of religion, surge. So secularization theory um, is understood to be no more. It, it was popular in the 70s, in the 80s. Um, it isn't a thing anymore. We're actually in so-called a post-secular age and people are realizing that religion continues to shape the world that we live in. Faith continues to be important to many people and we cannot push people out or say they don't have a place in the modern world because they're people of faith. So that's something that has changed in academia and while people pushed it while it was popular, it doesn't mean that it was true or that it lasted. So that is academia and you know if you read a journal for you know you, you look at a particular field, uh, Reformation historiography, the history of the Reformation and how it's written, things change all the time and scholars can disagree with each other for decades and decades and decades throughout their entire career and uh, they're all intelligent people who argue their point fantastically and have great points to make but these points contradict each other. Person A and person B don't agree and that's okay, they're both valid, they're both published, they're both written books and, and all of that and you don't know which one is absolutely true because 
it doesn't have to be absolutely true. It's not about finding the universal truth and proclaiming that and insisting that this is it. And if you feel like that, if you feel like discourse surrounding like critical race theory is pushing you out and saying that you can't think, you just have to accept something, then that is not real academia, that's not real academic discourse. It's actually watered down. So I would blame the media. What is the media? I'm a communications and media um, graduate. And I would say that the media is about making money. It's about selling things that people want to hear or selling sensation. Things that make it to national headlines are things that sell. Um, it's a very dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, especially because um, if you look at like Print, printed magazines, print newspapers, those are kind of being, going obsolete and media outlets have to find a new way to make money. They make money out of dividing people. Social media makes money out of dividing people. So when these, these things go from the world of academia into the world of mainstream discussion, sometimes the sort of discourse, the critical thinking, the rigorous thinking, the questioning gets taken out of it. It's turned into something that's like, this is absolute. You have to do it like this. You have to agree like this. And if you don't, you are, um, you know, this or that. And you're, you may feel like you're disenfranchised. You feel less than, you feel disregarded. You feel like you don't have a place in the conversation because you feel like you're not accepted. I mean, that is a very valid feeling and I would blame, like I say, media sensationalization for that. In fact, there are studies, I think, by Chikara and Bavel, I think, um, that show that division and extremist views thrive on, on platforms like Twitter. If you say something balanced and neutral or something that you know, considers different points of view, you're not going to be heard. If you say things that are divisive and extreme, you actually get way more traction nowadays on social media. So that has colored the discussion of critical theory. Critical theory is not about pushing an ideology on you and saying this is the way and nothing else is the way. And if it is, then you have every right to reject the way that it's being presented to you because no one should ever accept something that is just pushing, you know, you're told you're this, you're that, you're... <laughs> you're wrong or you just you know <laughs> that's not how it should be so let's have a reasonable discussion about what critical theory is and I'm talking about critical theory as a research approach in the world of academia and I'm actually taking that theory and I'm applying it to my own research um, and using that as a research paradigm what is a research paradigm well Five years ago when I first did my honors dissertation, I didn't know what a paradigm was. It's still difficult to understand. I think I used it and my research supervisor was like, yeah, yeah, you're using the paradigm. And I was like, but I don't know what it is. How can I be using something when I don't know what it is? But apparently I was using it. And I was. Um, so there are a couple of main paradigms in research. I will put a link to, a, to an article from the Science Inquiry in Social Work website. This is a chapter 
from a book called Scientific Inquiry in Social Work, um, Chapter 6.2, Paradigm Theories and How They Shape a Researcher's Approach. Okay, a paradigm is a way of viewing the world. It's like this pair of glasses helps me see the world clearly. It serves this purpose. Um, if I were to put on sunglasses, it would change the way I see the world, but it could help me see some things better. Like if it's really bright, you know, it could prevent me from getting a headache while I'm outdoors. So it's like that. There are different lenses and academia is like you have a toolkit of different analytical lens that you can choose through which to study the world. And we're talking about social science, which is interpreting the world around us and studying it. Because social science is a little bit different from pure science. It's different from biology, where a cell is a cell, and the sun is the sun, and the color blue is a specific wavelength. Social science studies people and ideas and societies, which means that you can't really be so exact. So traditionally, the old school approach to research would be called positivism. Positivism is about absolutes, it's about objective truth, something that you can absolutely figure out and know and put down on paper that this is true. It's often related to pure science because certain things are are more absolute in science, in studying the natural world, but a lot of things are not absolute as well. But science can be a little bit more positivist. Um, positivism says that society can and should be studied empirically and scientifically. It's treating human society like a part of science, like it's biology. And positivism is not really used in social science very much anymore. Here's another view, one that I have used, and it's called social constructivism. It says that truth is about interpretation. It's about reality that you construct. And when I did my uh, thesis, I used the social constructivism paradigm to study how teachers view the internet. I studied how educators see the internet, whether it's useful to their lives, how they perceive it, it's, uh, especially its uh, benefits for teachers, for learning. Social constructivism says that it's not just true what is generally true and observable. People's experiences and feelings count, and that is what we want to explore. So I studied um, seven different people, I interviewed them and I put their experiences, their, their thoughts, their opinions at the forefront of my research and I centered it around the people. So it's, it's people-focused research. It's about interpretation. Um, it says here, reality is created collectively, social context and interaction frame our reality. So it's social. Um, constructionism. Okay, that's a little bit different from social constructivism, but or constructivism, but uh, pretty much. So it says truth can vary, and it's, it's dependent on how societies construct truth. Now, I'll give you an example. Positivism in science would say that blue is blue and red is red, and it's a wavelength. Um, a constructivist view, a social constructionist view, would say that for example, different societies perceive color differently. Some societies have words, um, two words for different types of red. 
so let's see, pink and maroon, something like that. Or maybe different words for different shades of blue. And in their mind, they are two different colors. To us, maybe scientifically, or maybe from a different perspective, these are the same color, different hues of the same color. Uh, for pe someone from a different society, these are two different colors, completely different, uh, maybe related in some way. So that is how society, culture shapes our view of even color, of something scientific and factual, so-called. Okay, so then let's talk about a third approach, critical theory. And that is the one that triggers people, that gets people, yeah, you know, it's controversial, it's divisive. But really in academia, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, I, okay, let's talk about what it is. Um, positivism and social construction, constructionism studies the way things are. They study the way the physical world is or the social world is. It studies, it observes, you observe, you study, and then you publish. Um, critical theory is a different approach to doing research altogether that's different from these two other approaches because critical theory doesn't just study the way things are. Critical theory is critical. It questions the way things are and asks us how should things change? Now, of course, this is controversial because a lot of people have different ideas about whether things are good and bad and need to change and don't need to change and how. Often, often I would say critical people who use critical theory, um, I wouldn't call them critical theorists because nobody is the actual theorist of critical theory anymore. Uh, people who use critical theory as a lens through which they view society um, often have ideas about how society should be changed or improved. And they have a lot of different ideas. It varies a lot. Um, but it's not necessary to agree with their method or their solution that is being proposed because that is hypothetical. It's, it's theoretical. It's, it's a suggestion. Uh, there are two things that they would point out. How society is and why that perhaps needs to improve. How perhaps there is a problem. And then what is the proposed solution. So these two things. And I often find that I can agree with the, the problem that is being pointed out. Especially when I want to validate somebody else's experience. Then there is you know the solution proposed. And we don't always have to agree with the solution. And the solution is not set in stone. So I think what people assume is that when you use something like critical theory, that academia is being positivist and being absolute and saying this is objective truth, when it's more like this is how I view it, this is how I think it can change, this is how perhaps things need to be improved. And look, it can be put across in very absolute terms. Um, because that is what people who are passionate do. We say things, I say things, in a very strong way because I really believe in it, but that doesn't mean that there, you know, that it is the truth that everyone must believe. Um, <laughs> so that is, that is the basic lens of critical theory. Um, let's talk a little bit about the critical theory 
that I employ uh, when I use when I when I do uh, my current research. But maybe before that, let's talk about um, how critical theory can affect research, say, in medical uh, healthcare, in medical science. So let's say medical science says, okay, we discovered this. Um, okay, maybe we'll study the effects of this treatment or um, that population. So it's studying things from a very neutral perspective and approaching and just observing society. Critical theory would want to dig a little bit deeper. Again, the word critical means that you are critical about the way things are. So you're you're uncovering things. You're, you're, you think that there might be something more to the story. There might be something that is unseen and unheard and you might want to uncover that. So for example, um, you're looking at healthcare and you say, okay, why is it and then you realize, looking at the data, why is it that two people can enter the hospital, let's say two, two women who are going to have babies, they're the same age, they have the same level of health, but why is it that the mortality rate for this woman A is higher than that of woman B? And then you look, maybe the statistics have to do with ethnicity. Maybe the statistics have to do with what city that they're living in, the conditions in that city, that hospital, that healthcare. It could be related to ethnicity. And if woman A, for, you know, their same level of health, they enter the same hospital, um, but one person is more likely to come out from having the child, to come out of the hospital alive, then you have to ask the question, why? Why is it? Why is there this... Um, I, why are the results different? And then you might ask yourself, are there things in the system, biases maybe that could affect the quality of healthcare, that could affect the interactions, whether could it be communication? Let's say it's a migrant group and the communication, you realize, you discover in research that communication between this person and the healthcare professional is um, difficult. You know, you can't put across what what you are, uh, what you're going through as well. Maybe you're less likely to be understood, and therefore the quality of health given healthcare given to you results in a different outcome. It could be. I mean, there are many things like that. There are problems, <laughs> controversial word here. There could be, and there are systemic inequalities in healthcare that affects outcomes when they shouldn't affect outcomes. But yeah, so questions like that, and when you look at the statistics, when you look at something like that and see, you know, just medical outcomes, and you realize that there is a difference, that leads you to question things, and that leads to bigger thoughts, bigger inquiries, and that might, that might, you know, uncover certain things that might be uncomfortable to think about and uncomfortable to look at. And so critical theory questions the way things are and sees whether we actually need like a lot of change or whether things are okay. Now there is a cute little comic. We have two birds sitting down talking to each other and one says, do you think the owl is a predator? And the other says, of course not, he's never bothered me. Exactly, says the bird. And then they both continue. And then one of the bird, the original bird comments, no idea what Mr. Mouse was going on all about. 
So it's something like that. It's often a matter of different perspectives and that does bring us back to social constructionism a little bit. Perspective matters. Perspective shapes our reality and if we are, or like if you are a, a, an eagle, you know, in and the um, I'll never bothers you, then you wouldn't know what it's like to be the mouse and have the owl be an actual predator that you are afraid of. So it is perspective like that. Now let me talk a little bit about postcolonialism. <laughs> I know you're all waiting for this. Postcolonialism is a theory that I employ in my own research. And when I first heard about postcolonialism, I didn't completely understand it. I realize now what it is after researching and reading many different articles about it. And then I realized the more I looked into it, that post-colonialism is not just an idea. It's the reality of the world and it's the reality of my life. Um, so post-colonialism is a type of critical theory. Postcolonialism looks at the world today as being a world that's after the age of colonization and in the age of maybe neo-colonization, but the the proper colonization, you know, that age, imperialism, European imperialism, was from about the 1500s to about 1950, when a lot of the nations that are in the global south, Asia, South America, um, Africa, um, became their own nation, re regained independence after you know, a long history of European control. Um, where I live here, we've had, we had the Portuguese, we had the Dutch, we had the British come and colonize this, some parts of our country for a very, very long time. And it affects the reality of so much of the world that we live in. Postcolonialism is a reality. It is simply what it what what it is. It's what it is to be me. And <laughs> and when I realized this, when I realized how the world was shaped by colonialism, um, that opened up so much more in terms of self understanding identity. Knowing that my life here, um, the person that I am is shaped by this reality so much so um, that I can look at, look at the research being done in this area and realize that this is something that we actually need to talk about. We can't just pretend that it didn't happen. We actually have to look at the effects of what happened. Coming from where I come from, looking at um, missionization of Asia, for example, right here, just uh, two hours away, is where the first Chinese Bible was translated. Um, not in China, it was translated here in Malaysia. And it was translated by someone who was working for the East India Company, I believe, and who took that Chinese Bible and laid it, presented it to King George IV in England. And it was part of um, an overall project that spreading Christianity was very much tied to um, colonialism and going European countries, going to other countries, taking over and just saying, okay, this belongs to me now. And I get to make money out of this country, which, uh, which was never my land, which is somebody else's land, and <laughs> make money off of it and promote 
uh, my religion to make people more favorable to maybe speaking English to make people more favorable to trade and and to yeah some of them you know sometimes had noble ideas about improving the lives of people you know giving them education and all that in English um, real huge complicated subject if the Bible hadn't been translated at that time the gospel would not have spread in the way that it spread in China and there is the gospel there and that's amazing and wonderful and on the other hand there is this legacy that it is mixed with and we you know we just need to look at it and this is what post-colonial criticism does it's looking at the hard facts and the controversies and the messiness of history and you know examining christianity let's talk about the field of theology theology as we know it, if you go to your, to your bookshelf, what is theology? Theology is systematic theology. Reformed, Arminian, um, lots of different schools of theology. But when you realize it, and I never realized it before, theology is shaped by European voices, particularly male, clerical European voices. And those are shaping how we view God, how we view theology, and it's not necessarily wrong. It's just one kind of voice and one way of shaping Christianity that in many ways differs very, very, very much from first century Christianity. It's come to us from a long history and it's often come to the rest of the world from a European perspective and that's why a lot of Christianity it feels very European. Over here, like if you became a Christian, you got an English name and you weren't really considered Asian or whatever it is your ethnicity is. You're not really considered part of your tribe or your culture anymore. It, it is as if you had been Europeanized. And that was the <laughs> kind of reality of it. And so post-colonial theology for me, um, a lot of people ask a lot of questions. And, and the questions are great. Um, I don't agree with all the questions being asked. I don't necessarily agree that we need, that Christianity needs to be considered from the perspective of other religions. That's a place that I'm not going to go. I'm still very much an orthodox, you know, Nicene Creed and all of that. Um, but, you know, there are some places that I will question and I want to explore because it's relevant to me into my faith, into the original faith as we have it. If you are a Christian who believes that Christianity um, in the early church era re represented a more faithful, um, faithful was a more faithful representation of the historic faith, then what you are essentially doing is critical theory because you're thinking critically about the way things are in the church and the way things should be. Now, I'm not saying that you're a critical theorist like those people writing articles for the newspapers or posting on social media, but you are using critical thinking. And um, that's something that's been a part of my own faith journey, which is thinking about things like church traditions. Like, why are churches like that? Why do they have steeples and bells and stained glass windows? Um, did the early church have that? No, they met in homes. So then we are 
using critical thinking to really think about what you know what the historic faith is what was the faith what were the things that Jesus considered important to the faith and what are the things that maybe were things that passed down that happened to be be convenient and right and for you know that point in history but it came passed down and the meaning of it is kind of lost over time one of the huge questions that we ask is about nonviolence how did christianity historically become tied to state power to military conquest to the roman empire how did that shape christian christianity christian theology what was christendom why did Christendom engage in colonialism and conquering other continents and other countries around the world? Is that part of the original Christian faith? Is that something that Jesus wanted us to do? And here in the Kingdom Outpost, we believe that that is not what Jesus sent the church to do. That we believe that if we follow the way that Jesus interacted with political systems that if we follow what jesus said and did and take away all the excess baggage of a history of christianity tied with power we would arrive at the same position that the early christians and the apostolic christians believed which is that jesus calls us to beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks and that to me is almost it that to me is is the is the post-colonial criticism that I engage in as a person who who kind of lives in the reality of, of Christian conquest, um, of, of Christian use of military power that affected society the society in which I live, that is what that is the, the critical theory that I engage in, which is to, to try to look and see what are the, you know, what are the, the traditions and, and legacies that we need to ask questions about. And then going back to the different voices, are we hearing the voices of people or are we hearing the voice of Jesus? Are we listening to what people tell us that Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount? Um, or are we hearing him for what he said? Are we hearing a theology that tells us um, that we can, in fact, spiritually not throw the first stone, but physically throw the first stone to condemn someone? Or are we listening to Jesus's plainest words, which says, whoever has no sin, cast the first stone. So that is, that is critical theory to me. Um, and then it is also realizing that the voices, like the dominant voices in Christianity and in theology have been certain voices. And these voices have taken center stage and shaped Christianity for the rest of the world. You'd be surprised how much Western Christianity, American Christianity affects like Christians far, far, far away. And yet the ideas perpetuate and we ask why are these ideas given priority why are these ideas heard more and there's a long history for that there are many social cultural reasons 
why a Western view of Christianity is prioritized. It's given, like I said, center stage. And then other voices are on the outside. So we have the center, and this is kind of my own view of it. You have the center, the locus of power, and then you have the margins. And sometimes it feels like certain voices are inside and certain voices are outside. Certain voices are the center and certain voices are marginalized on less heard, considered less valid and less important. One of the main questions that people have or, uh, that I came across on social media that make a lot of sense to me is why were certain people like George Whitfield um, slave owners and also Christian theologians and at the time in which they were um, how could they you know be Christian preachers and theologians while practicing this and then that leads us to the question and that means the question why is systematic theology so concerned about these things and maybe less concerned about other things? So like, why is Christian nonviolence not considered an essential core doctrine, something that Jesus talked about? Why is it that, you know, we would be more concerned about um, deontology or Christology and the nature of this and nature of that? And then I realized that a lot of systemic theology is theoretical it's all in the mind but it it misses out like you can know all the facts about god is omniscient god is omnipotent and all that but what about the fact that god is love what about the fact that god is someone who is afflicted when people are afflicted who suffers with people what about the fact that god hates violence and and enmity you know what about all these other things what about the fact that God wants us to love one another and let the world, like these things should be central to theology, but they're cut out of systematic theology. Why? Why is it that the system could be like that and could be, could be, you know, adhere to that you could adhere to these sets of beliefs about God but it didn't necessarily translate into action and what I love about and about this theology in particular is that it has a very different approach to what is considered core theology and what's not considered the uh, what's not considered like theology. So if you were to read Friedman's Theology of Anabaptism from 1973, I think, or 1972, he talks about it. He talks about why certain topics in, were very important in Reformation Protestant theology and very different topics were important to the Anabaptists and why the Anabaptists were in this position of being the minority of people who didn't have power in society, who were on the margins, who were who were pushed out of you know, who were pushed out of, of society and saying you can't even exist. We don't want you among us because you have these different beliefs. And they were not the ones in positions of power. The reformers were the ones you know with the magisterial reformation who had the power to tell princes what to do and the Anabaptists were like hanging out with peasants and people who who were suffering because of heavy taxation, because of um, famine, because of like oppressive feudalism and why they were associated with the people who 
<laughs> the people like you know the monster rebellion why were they kind of grouped together with those uh, there's a lot of research into this but i can definitely tell you that if you want to like take a, a critical theory approach to topics like church history and theology you can certainly go there and it can be a very very productive discussion but imagine you were just imagine for a second you were in 16th century Switzerland um, and you you didn't believe in infant baptism and you were peasant maybe and then you then what you believed and did and practiced was considered illegal and therefore you had no power and no voice and you could be hauled up in front of the magistrate and maybe drowned or burned alive and then compare that situation to the position of a magisterial reformer somebody who is sitting like luther in the prince of in, in one of the prince's castles or maybe like Zwingli uh, working together with the zurich city councils not to villainize um, those traditions but Imagine that one is powerful, one is powerless, and one became, historically became the oppressor, and one historically became the oppressed, the minority. And, and then if you look at how histories were written, you were not only marginalized then, but that you were marginalized over centuries of history, discredited that what you believed and stood for was maligned, that you were accused, that you were, you know, people would write letters and pamphlets calling for you to be burned at the stake and saying that you have no place in society and, and, and all kinds of like accusations. And and for and that is the truth for from the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century until the 21st, 20th century, uh, early 20th century with Harold Bender and John Horsch and all those writers, and about just history and theology was marginalized and pushed out and said it's not valid these guys are complete nuts and, and, and no one should give them any credibility that they were just you know all these false or, or exaggerated accusations about the the monster rebellion and all that so that is what it is like to be marginalized um, and that is what it's like to have no power and that is a, a story i think that maybe I'm, I'm using that as an example to show you the question that critical theory asks um and the question that i can relate to looking at my own history looking at the colonial world and looking at christian nonviolence as the center of the understanding um, and, and being critical about the traditions and theologies that may not be of the, the apostolic faith. So now, critical theories critique the use of power and the use of oppressive power and the use of violence. So I would say that there are four expressions of um, power, uh, of of. of not just political power but social power as well and i would link it to constantinianism to christianity as empire to christianity as church tied with state and you can see that you know tied with state 
tied with culture, tied with ethnicity, um, tied with being the people, the majority, the powerful ones, the hurt ones, the ones who were accepted, who belonged, who were in. Um, and versus the people who were outside, who didn't have a voice, who didn't have power. Uh, people marginalized from the centers of power in Christendom. And the four kind of expressions, I would say, of uh, power over, or you know, that domination, uh, would be marginalization, pushing someone out and saying you don't belong. Oppression, uh, particularly like using power that you have over, over somebody to oppress them. Uh, violence and exploitation. Now, if we were to look at the New Testament, that's the cool thing. The New Testament is a narrative of a people suffering under colonial oppression, under the Roman Empire. The disciples were like, when are we going to be free? When will, be, when will we be a people in our own land? When will you, Jesus the Messiah, restore the kingdom back to us? The disciples were asking that because they were a suffering colonized people. A Roman soldier had all the power. A disciple or follower of Jesus or just a random person um, in Judea did not have that power. The Roman soldier could compel you to carry his pack with him. The Roman soldier could kill you possibly and not face any retribution. Taxes, as we know, were oppressive. So if we look marginalization, oppression, violence, exploitation, we see that um, in the New Testament, we see the disciples, Jesus, suffering under this system where they were the other, where they were the outcast. And even within their society, there were also more outcasts that Jesus cared about, whether it was the Samaritan, whether it was, you know, the woman at the well who was even ostracized from the Samaritans, um, whether it was Jesus saying, you know, when you have a meal, don't invite people who will pay you back and invite you back for another meal. Invite the lame, the blind, the outcast, people sleeping on the highways and bodies that nobody will invite into their homes. Why? Because Jesus saw and empathized with people who were suffering. We look at the perspective of the Bible from this Christ, from this Jesus, from this lived experience of marginalization and, and Roman oppression, then we're like, how could Jesus ever represent oppressive power? How could a cross be staked onto um, a, a piece of land like Columbus did and, and used as a symbol of, of the genocide and slavery that accompanied it. It is such a broken, twisted misrepresentation of the true faith. Um, so that's a little bit of post-colonial critical theory as applied to, to re-looking at the New Testament for what it really was in its cultural context and what it has to say to us with regard to oppressive power. Now, there are several um, systems that operate using this kind of oppressive power. And, you know, these systems, we can debate them a lot, um, but these are what they are. State authoritarianism would be one use of oppressive power. Militarism is a use of oppressive power. Um, imperialism or colonization. Um, 
economic exploitation. And a lot of the world today is not necessarily being colonized, but is under economic exploitation. That's why there are people working in sweatshops and, and factories and, and suffering under very unjust conditions to profit someone in a, you know, that global multinational company in a developed nation, earning money off the profits of, of cheap, underpaid labor, people working in unsafe conditions. It is it is a very a global capitalism where it affects actual people and actual lives. This is not about trying to win Marxist ideology. This is a simple fact of everyday living for people every day around the world. They are being oppressed by greed. And, and you know, I would say that crit some aspects of like the critical part of critical theory, um, the critical part of it, I would say, is sometimes if you live under it, it's real to you and it's, it's the reality, whereas if you don't live under it, you may not even know that it exists because it is so outside of your lived experience. Like, I don't know, like, who is making the, the smartphone that I have and what their, you know, what the human and natural cost is for that economic exploitation, um, which really boils down more than anything to greed. And if we were to take a theological perspective on economic exploitation, we could go into that. That would be fascinating. That would be really, really interesting to see what Jesus says about making money, like of people's suffering, um, of, you know, being greedy and all that kind of thing. That would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Interestingly, I was reading in the, I think, MQR, that some, the Anabaptists early on um, in Europe, some of them refused to work as merchants because they did not believe that they could take somebody else's work, add, you know, um, a margin of profit to it and sell it and earn money from somebody else's work. They felt it would be more honest to create something with their own hands, whether it's a farmer or, um, you know, something like that, rather than then profit off somebody else's labor as a merchant and also profit off people coming to you to, to buy those things and they could be necessary things like bread. Um, so there's also um, racial um, oppressive power and we know that racism exists and racism is very real for a lot of people. Um, Post-colonialism is a kind, it's, it's a bigger global system of racism and critical race theory I would say would be often a smaller scale consideration within countries, uh, race systems that are maybe created and, and used that marginalize, you know, oppress or do violence or exploit. You know, you can ask questions about this and I think it's fair to ask questions about this because not because we come from a moral basis, which is critical theory, but because we come from a basis of being Christians following Jesus, and Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. But yeah, James talks about greed and economic exploitation and not giving, you know, your laborers fair wages. And then, yeah, so systems like that. And then we uh, can consider gender bias as well. So these are the different areas, um, state authoritarianism, 
um, gender bias, racism, economic exploitation, militarism, and imperialism. And these are often connected. Racism could be connected with imperialism. Imperialism could be connected with economic exploitation. So, you know, critical theory is asking questions about these things. Should we put critical theory on a pedestal? Should we be obsessed about it and see the world in only this way? Or should we insist that this particular use of critical theory, this application of critical theory, and the, pro the, the problems highlighted and solutions suggested, do we need to agree with every one of them? No, because in academia, they all disagree with one another anyway. So. How can you agree with something of which there is so much debate and there is no agreement whatsoever? We can't. And the media likes to oversimplify the narrative and we don't have to do that. But we can look at things critically as a Christian. And I do believe that while um, this is a modern theory, I believe that the subversiveness of the kingdom that Jesus brought and the way that we're supposed to look at the world, to look for the people who are suffering and have no voice and show compassion on them, to mourn with those who mourn, um, to be the servant of all. These are all principles that should underlie our theology and our way of life and approaching the world that is not very much unlike modern iterations of that and but marxism was a criticism of christendom marx as far as i know i'm not very familiar with all his work or any of it or very much of it marx uh was someone who grew up in christendom as a minority as a jewish person whose family had been like kind of forced to convert because to be in the in crowd you had to be you had to blend in with this Christian society to have a voice or power, to have a place in society, to even work in a, in a guild, or even to not be expelled or not, not be persecuted. Because Christendom... So Marxism is a criticism of Christendom. And it did not provide historically, it did not provide a lot of good answers to um, the problems of Christendom, what was going on. It did not. No one is saying that we should apply Marxist solutions to the problems of the world. But it does bring up questions that I think we need to talk about and think about because I think that the questions being asked are not unlike the questions that, that Jesus would have us ask as Christians about the suffering, about the unheard, about the powerless, about the disinherited in society. So this is a long roundabout discussion of what uh, critical theory can be, um, of what you know critical theory can be for a Christian. If you were to look at the world today um, and you look at the way things are being talked about, you know facts are being watered down, people are attracting readers, gaining clicks stirring up division on social media. We don't have to buy into that. We don't have to agree with everything there is. I believe instead of moving towards critical theory or trying to be progressive or, or like woke, I think instead of moving towards critical theory, we should be moving towards Christ. We should be moving towards really knowing Jesus really immersing ourselves in the spirit of the Gospels. And maybe the problems that we see and the suffering that we 
we find ourselves learning about the lived experience of others may seem a little bit like we're being critical theorists. But, but the fact is, we're not trying to, to move towards critical theory as the ideal. Critical theory doesn't give us hope. It doesn't give us a vision and a purpose. It doesn't tell us what we, we can or need to do. It's literally recognizing problems and trying to come up with human solutions to problems caused by humans. And if you look at something that's based on Marxism, like liberation theology, if you take the oppressed and you turn them, give them power, they will just repeat that human cycle of oppression. They'll become the oppressors themselves. And that does happen a lot. People react against oppression, then they, they institute something that's just as violent and just as oppressive. Because it's human solutions to human problems. Whereas if we see the gospel, the gospel is telling us that human beings are caught, that you are enslaved in the system of sin, and the only way out of that is Jesus, because Jesus completely turned human systems of power upside down by coming as a lamb and coming as a servant. And that whole beauty and mystery of the gospel, that gives us hope, that gives us a vision. We do recognize the problems in society, but maybe we can see these problems as a result of of sin and human brokenness and even if we can as human beings recognize the problem without Jesus um, I don't think that there is a, a solution there can be some solutions because human beings made in the image of God I believe are capable of good and of love and of caring for one another but I think that the kingdom of God is the only solution the only the only antidote, the only thing that is going to overcome the empires of the world, the empires with, you know, like the Roman Empire, with slavery and exploitation and violence and, and soldiers getting away with doing a lot of terrible things to people and persecution, you know, all that empire, oppressive power can only be overcome by the kingdom and a kingdom that is, you know, turning the world upside down, proclaiming Jesus as king. So I hope this is a redemptive way of talking about critical theory, um, kind of all over the place, but I hope that it helps and um, hope <laughs> that it was somewhat um, enjoyable and helpful to you. If you have any questions, do let me know. I definitely do enjoy talking about uh, research paradigms <laughs> and post-colonialism. So um, be sure to like and subscribe to the Kingdom Outposts for more of these kinds of discussions. <laughs>